Well, hey everyone, what's up? Good morning and welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Joel. I am one of the pastors here at Res City and we're thankful to have you uh, worshiping with us this Sunday morning. Uh, we are in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians, walking through uh, what Paul's letter to the church in Corinth entails. And uh, really one of the big themes, if you've been walking along with us in this series, uh, of of the letter to the Corinth, the first letter of the Corinthians is uh, an idea of holiness, and so we've called the um, sermon series "Becoming Who We Are." Uh, the idea being, we want to live into uh, the identity that God has given us, this identity of holiness um, that has been secured for us in Jesus, um, and how that's a, a challenge and, and a comfort and encouragement for us. Um, and we see what Paul says to the Corinthians, and we're taking it on ourselves here. Uh, as a church. So I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to get going with uh, with the sermon today. Lord, thank you that you bless us by making us holy, by calling us your holy people, by setting us apart in the world so that we may be people who can uh, be uh, your your temple, your the place where your glory and your presence dwells. Um, we thank you that you choose to dwell with us as your people. Lord, I pray that as we study your word today that you would help us to grow in our understanding of that um, more and more so that we may um, be your people. Uh, we may follow Jesus when we experience his love and his grace more and more every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I want to start out by introducing you to, I don't know, maybe it's the most fascinating or the most nightmarish building project in the whole world. It kind of depends on your your point of view. Um, it's something called the La Sagrada Familia. Um, I don't know if any of you have heard of this before, maybe, maybe not. It's just, it's utterly fascinating. Um, it's a building, it's a cathedral in Barcelona, and it was conceived of and designed by a man named Antony Gaudi. Now, Gaudi began the construction on this in 1882, and it's expected to be finished in 2026. Okay, if you you're not good at doing quick math in your head. That's about 140 years, I think. Uh, now, Gaudi's obviously dead. Um, in, in 1882, when they started it, he was 31 years old, and it took the next 43 years of his life to, to work on this. And honestly, not a whole lot of work overall got done in that time. Now, he was a bit of a character. He only ate lettuce dipped in milk for his lunch. Uh, very odd, and he also dressed like a homeless person. He's kind of well-known to just have very odd habits like that. But he, as, a, as is the case with a lot of eccentric people, he was known as a certifiable genius, someone who was thinking way, way ahead of his time. And this is part of the reason it was so difficult to build La Sagrada Familia um, is, is because his ideas were not of the 1880s and, and, and early 1900s. Um, his ideas were really to fuse art and nature so that when you entered La, La Sagrada Familia, you felt like you were in something living. Um, and and in his mind, as a devout Catholic that he was, he believed that this would honor God, the creator, to showcase the natural architecture of the world itself. So if you look at some videos or pictures of it, you will really start to see this genius. Um, and in his biographer says, what was unique about him is that he saw this building not as just something that was very functional that you would use the space in, but it was a, it itself, the building itself was a sculpture. So he wanted the interior, and if you look at 
pictures of this or videos online, it, it looks like this. He wanted it to look and feel like you were in an actual forest um, where the pillars of the cathedral on the inside kind of towering above you looked like trees, but also they looked like skeletons. And if you look at the entrance of the building, the arches look like rib cages. And uh, there's a seashell inspired spiral staircase running through the building. Stuff like that. And, and, and on top of that, he wanted to build a church that told the story of the Bible with sculptures almost like growing out of the walls that told these, these stories to tell us the story of Scripture. And, and 40 years in, like I said, he is, he's doing this and he's still actually pretty far away from finishing it. Um, and he died getting hit by a tram, kind of doing his, his, his morning routine as he headed to the site. And, and, and not long after, all these models that he'd built to show what the building was supposed to be like were destroyed in the Spanish Civil War. And so builders had no idea how to finish it for years until the year 1977 when a young architecture student stepped in. And uh, this guy started using computer modeling, I think actually aeronautical designing actually, actually to figure out how to finish, you know, to put back together these broken and shattered um models that had been destroyed. Um, they bought the world's first CNC machine in 1980, 1988 to carve the insane structures along the building. Um, and it's become a tourist attraction as work has continued. Like I said, it's gonna, it's expected to be finished in 2026. And because of all this, it's one of the longest building projects in history. And I think as we, you know, hear this story, we learned a little bit about La Sagrada Familia. Um, it shows us a few things. First of all, that building something magnificent takes collaboration between people. And the second is that it can sometimes be difficult and long to build something of worth, but it is still worth doing it when we do. All right, so today's passage, the reason I bring this up is I think it really draws us into these ideas. Um, it that This passage today is about building something. It's about working together for something magnificent. And I know for me as a pastor, I come back to this passage all the time. It's, it's, it's completely foundational for me and frames how I think about what I'm doing. And, and, it, and it frames ministry with this question. What are you building? What are you building? And maybe we could say, how are you building it? Now, primarily, this is a passage that is aimed at ministers like Paul, but I think it's relevant for anyone even if you don't do full-time vocational ministry like Paul does. And so we'll dig into that today. I want to kind of speak to both people who are in vocational ministry or are thinking about it, and also those of you who just do the regular ministry of the church, which I think is something all Christians are called to do. Um, and it's not all that Paul has to say about ministry. There's, there's, more that, there's plenty more that he, he says in his letters, but I think when you read all the stuff that he does have to say, they do harmonize really well with this. This is a really good starting point for it. So, okay, let me start by asking a question here. Okay, remember I said this forces us to ask, what are we building and how are we building it when we think about ministry? What do we think we're building when we talk about starting and, and maintaining modern churches? We talked last week about how the Corinthians really seem to be seeking out a, a kind of ancient celebrity adoration and how this is often using something that Paul calls human wisdom to build their church. Okay? And we talked about how often in the 
modern church, we are often, we are doing the same thing a lot of times. We're using certain human wisdom, thing that we, things that we find outside the church to tell us how we ought to construct the building that the, of the church that we, not the actual literal building, but like if you think of the church as a building, which we will hear in a bit, to, to build it out of human wisdom. Now, Caitlin Beatty, um, or Beatty, in a fantastic book called Celebrities for Jesus, um, she describes what churches often are shooting for when they are building their church, whether they realize it or not. And she says, Many churches turn their lead pastor into a celebrity and allow his individual power to eclipse the power of the institution. Naturally, the pastor brings on a plethora of staff and volunteers to carry out his vision for the church, but no one is mistaken about whose vision it is. If the church succeeds, meaning it grows in buildings and budgets and butts, okay, uh, <laughs> uh, butts is confusing. It's, uh, it, she just means butts in the pews. That's what she's talking about there. It's kind of an insidery way to describe the, the three big B's is what gets called in ministry. Buildings, budgets, and butts, butts in the pews. Then the church starts to believe the success uh, of that its success depends on the success of the pastor. The institution's identity becomes enmeshed with the pastor's. His public persona serves to draw fame and renown to the church. Having a celebrity pastor is seen as benefiting the church. Over time, a pernicious belief can set in that the church wouldn't go on without this lead pastor at the helm, almost as if God depends on the celebrity pastor to accomplish God's purposes, almost as if the pastor is God himself. Now let me ask you this, what is being built here with this idea of ministry? Well, it's not really a church, it's not a people, it's a personality, it's a brand, it's someone's ego. And I think the Corinthians would have loved a lot about the modern day church, which is not a compliment for us today. Uh, but the point for us is that the Corinthians' love for all this was taking them down the wrong path. And so when we think about it, we can ask ourselves, are we headed down a similar path that they are? Okay, and Paul's going to correct them on what is being built and therefore what leadership should look like. And he's going to use two images, okay? So we're going to really dig into these two images today. And they're going to form two of really my three big points in the sermon today. And then the third one, we're going to put this all together. So that's a bit of a roadmap for what's to come here. So yeah, the two buildings, the two images, sorry, are of a field and a building. In 1 Corinthians 3.9, Paul says, You are God's field. You are God's building. So Paul is using these analogies to describe the Corinthian church, and I think by extension, all churches. And I think why that's important for him is that knowing what is being built, knowing what it is that the church is, allows leaders of the church to understand what they're supposed to be doing as they see their role in this thing that is they're working in. So let's, let's take these one by one. Let's start out with the field metaphor, because that's where Paul starts. Um, the, the big idea of the field metaphor for Paul is that ministry is a divine collaboration where uh, ministry workers have different tasks but the same agenda. So Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 3, 5-9. After all, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? We are only God's servants through whom you believe the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. I planted the seed in your hearts and Apollos watered it but it was God who made it to grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. 
The one who plants and the one who waters both work with the same purpose, and both will be rewarded for their own hard work, for we are both God's workers. Okay, so Paul starts off saying, oh, who is Apollos? Who, After all, who is Apollos? And I think, um, you know, we might actually ask that question literally, though. We don't know who Apollos is. So let me explain who he is, because I think that is a little bit helpful to understand what's going on here, if you understand a bit of the story behind it. So Apollos He's an apparently very talented communicator. We learn about him in Acts 18. Um, and, and this is a man who is he's from uh, Alexandria, Egypt. And he's a very talented communicator. And if you put two and two together, it's, it's, it's probably pretty likely that he was trained in the well-known philosophical school there. So this is someone who, meets, who begins to follow Jesus. And shortly after it, uh, he, he meets Paul. And Paul kind of trains him and helps him to understand Jesus in even deeper. Paul and some of his ministry associates um, named Priscilla and Quilla. And at some point after Paul left Corinth, Apollos comes to Corinth. And he spends some time teaching the church there. And the Corinthians apparently went nuts. They love this guy. They can't believe at how much wisdom and eloquence he seems to have. Now, Apollos had never come to Corinth to start a beef with Paul. Um, honestly, he, he probably went at Paul's suggestion. because These guys, they seem like they're pretty tight, Paul and Apollos. Okay, but w- whatever Apollos had done had left such an impression on the Corinthians that they now thought, hey, we found someone who has totally uh, eclipsed Paul. He has these things that we have started to think are of ultimate value. Wisdom, eloquence, power. He blows Paul out of the water with those things. And what Paul is telling them here is that he and Apollos are working on a divine collaboration. Now, collaborations are, let's just use this example. They're popular in the music industry where you have two or more artists that come together and make a song or an album together. There's some really famous ones. Um, I think growing up, my my favorite, I still think this is one of the best collab albums I've ever, or songs for that matter, that I've ever heard. Uh, Linkin Park and Jay-Z, two, two big bands from when I was like in high school, or well, Jay-Z's not a band, but two big artists from when I was in high school. They made this album called Collision Course. And it was really good. Just such, such good music, I thought. Um, you have two pop stars, two very famous people on their own right, but they're coming together to work on a collaboration to make something bigger than them. The Corinthians are, what they're doing is they're approaching these leaders like they're all individual pop stars and trying to pit them against each other. But Paul is saying, in reality, you shouldn't think about them as solo artists making their own music, but as uh, artists that are working together with God on a divine collaboration, right? So they might sing different lyrics. They might have different parts of the song but they're working on the same song or album, right? And you might like one person's verse better than another person's verse, but really it's only together that the two make up the song, right? Everyone contributes and no one is supposed to be the star of the show over the other. They have different tasks, but the same agenda. And that's how it is for pastors and people working in ministry. The goal is the growth of the church into God's holy and flourishing field. And anything the Corinthians do to try to pit Paul and Paulus against each other or compare them, what that is, is it's totally against the purpose that those two had. And instead, 
It's chasing after human wisdom. So when we jump ahead, Paul picks up on this and he challenges the Corinthians to stop thinking this way. This is 1 Corinthians 3, 18 to 23. Stop deceiving, deceiving yourselves. If you think you are wise by this world's standards, you need to become a fool to become truly wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. As the scriptures say, he traps the wise in the snare of their own cleverness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. He knows they are worthless. So don't boast about a particular human leader. For everything belongs to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or the world or life and death or the present and the future. Everything belongs to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Okay, what Paul's saying to them here is this. Let me sum this up. He's like, guys, he's like grabbing them, he's shaking them. He's saying, quit focusing so much on me and Apollos. Give it a break, you guys. Quit trying to make fetch a thing. Props to you if you get that reference. Um, you don't like me and my ministry? Great. I don't care. Paul's like, I don't care that much if you don't think I'm a great speaker. You don't love me. If you're growing more like Jesus from Apollos' ministry, that's the point. That's the end goal. That's what our collaboration is really all about. So don't despise me because you don't like my preaching or whatever. And don't think Apollos or whoever your teacher of choice is, is God himself because you do like the way that he or she, for that matter, does it. If you focus on comparing us, you will lose the main point of all of this. And you will turn it into celebrity worship rather than Jesus worship. So quit focusing so much on us and turning us into celebrities for your own benefit. Focus instead on Jesus. Focus instead on holiness. It's not any pastor at the end of the day who's making you grow. It's the Spirit. And the Spirit uses pastors, writers, speakers greatly in their ministries. The Spirit loves to do this. But don't confuse them with the Spirit. They're just servants. I think there can be a kind of seductive nature to ministry. Right? I'm speaking as a pastor here. There can be a seductive nature to ministry that makes a pastor think that what he or she is doing is totally indispensable to what God is doing. right? And so, yes, Absolutely. The work of ministers is incredibly important. And I really don't want to understate that. I really think that's true. I'm convicted of it. That's why I do it myself. Okay. But despite that, at the end of the day, I think what pastors need to understand is that individually, they themselves are not that important at the end of the day. Because what God has going on is his own work. And we get to play a part in that as ministers. But I'm never too important, good or bad. Okay. Now, let me tell you why I think this matters. I, I know I can struggle with this sometimes. I think I can put too much into the good or the bad that I do. So if I see someone struggling in their faith, like I tend to think, hey, that's my fault, even though it has nothing to do with me, or, or it, it, it most likely has nothing to do with me. It most likely has something to do that has is, is beyond me and my ability to minister to them well, or my I have control over it in some way, I guess is a better way to put it. Okay. I, but I can burden myself with all this guilt about someone struggling, right? And when things go well, I find this, it sneaks in. I kind of want to secretly find a way to give myself credit for it if someone is flourishing in some way, 
right? And like I said, God does use me and it does matter if I if I'm struggling in my ability to, to minister to people well in some ways. But what this passage does is it humbles me and other pastors away from falling on either side of that thing. And it becomes very freeing, okay? Because it's not my vision. I don't cause the growth. It, it's Jesus's vision and God causes the growth. And what I get to do is I get to serve in that. We'll come back to the idea of service here in a little bit when we sum everything up. But let's get into the second image that Paul uses now, this building metaphor. Okay, Paul is saying that leaders are building something and what they're building will eventually go through testing where they'll find out whether or not what they're building is of value. So this is 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 14. Because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it. But whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. Okay, pause for a second. What Paul's saying is he laid the foundation. When he first came to Corinth and he started this church, um, he laid a foundation of Christ crucified. If you remember from our sermon last week, we talked about how Paul said, this is all I wanted to know when I was with you. It, It was Christ and him crucified. So Paul had laid that there. He tried to set that up and and he had left to start some other churches and someone else is building now on this foundation. Now he's likely referring to some Corinthian leaders who have taken over um, kind of the local leadership while he's been gone. And Paul is warning them to say, better be careful with what you build. He continues on, verse 12 here. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. Uh, okay, so a couple things. First of all, the building that Paul's talking about here, we're not going to get into this in today's sermon, um, but he specifically says the building is a temple, a temple uh, dedicated to God. Now, the reason we're not getting into this today is because we're actually going to spend our whole retreat coming up here in a few weeks, our, our church-wide retreat, um, which we're very excited about, kind of meditating on this th- th- this idea of what does it mean for the church to be a temple uh, before God. Okay, so we won't get into that, but just keep that in mind. Paul's eventually about to say what's being built is actually a temple, a place where God dwells with his people. But the test here, the test is a fire, Paul says. Now that's a really common image for judgment in scripture and in other uh, Jewish writings in that period. Okay, and I think it can refer both to final judgment, but also to any stress tests in the present that we might experience too. Right, The church is always, we are always going through certain stress tests, certain uh, you could call them judgment, I suppose, in the present, but they what they do is they, they put us through a trial of some kind, a test. And this passage is forcing us to grapple with the question of what is the building that constitutes the church we're in? What is it made up of? Okay, What are we building Res City with? If you're building something of worth that you deep down think has value, okay, let's say you're building La, La, La Sagrada Familia, right? You want to build something out of the right material, okay? Because that's going to make the building, you know, attractive. It's going to make people think it's beautiful. 
but it's also going to allow it to stand up to whatever it is uh, that this building could experience that could potentially destroy it. And, and when you do that, it takes time to build. Okay, It's just common sense, right? It's just obvious. You can't put shortcuts into it. You can't microwave the building of something like that. And so if you try to build it you know, uh, uh, to, in a way that allows you to do quick and thoughtless construction, right? Maybe it is, it looks kind of nice, but it's not going to be strong. It's not going to last in any meaningful sense. And that's what Paul is challenging us to do when we think about our ministry. Again, we all do ministry. Paul's challenging us to think in this way. So let's make it personal here about Res City. What material are we building Res City out of? Right? Paul gives us a couple options, different types of things. He lists different types of building materials. Okay? On the one hand, you have wood, hay, and straw. And on the other hand, you have gold, silver, and jewels. They're these six materials, but they can be broken up into two categories based on how they would hold up to fire. That's the big idea in the passage here. So let's start with those first three. Wood, hay, and straw, right? These are flammable. If you light these on fire, they will go up very quickly. And so if your building is made out of them and some fire comes along, the whole thing is going to fall apart. Now for Paul, this is the human wisdom, the power, the eloquence that the Corinthians cherished. Now today, I think we could say it could be a lot of things, right? Those things certainly are still around. But there's other things I think that fit here that is the kind of material that just really won't last under any sort of real stress test, right? First of all, it could be like slick marketing and an experience cultivation where the church just becomes this machine that's designed to produce positive feelings in people like comfort or happiness, right? Kind of kind of meeting them in this thing that they've decided they, they, that they need to just be happy right? It could be the opposite of that, actually. Something very different, like rigid rules and traditions that are formed more from old institutions than actually out of the gospel, out of the move, movement of the Spirit in our lives. Uh, it could be a political vision that's imported from outside the church and overtakes it. I think we see this, uh, honestly, in both, both sides, both, both left and right. We see this happening in the church. Um, it could be, like we talked about a little bit before, a personality cult that's built around a charismatic leader, right? Uh, when we build with these materials, Gordon Fee, he's a, he's a, a, a commentator um, writing on 1 Corinthians. He says, we will sadly eventually realize that we are building something merely human. Okay, We might be enamored with these things in the moment because we tend to be enamored with ourselves. But if you build with those things, Paul warns, eventually it will be destroyed. It will not hold up to testing. And man, I really think we see a lot of churches struggling under the weight of testing right now. Okay? The church really, it's, it, it's in a season of testing. It has been for a little, little, little while now. Okay? And I think what we're finding, fortunately, is that a lot of what has been built in churches in America for a while now has been flammable material. Okay? We're, we're going through this trial, this testing, and, and a lot of stuff that we built is not holding up to it. Okay, now we're gonna, we are going to put some wood, hay, and straw into Rest City, right? It'd be foolish to think that we 
we couldn't do that, so that we there's no way we could do it, right? We're going to do that without realizing it. I do believe that's true. But the goal, I think, for us, for me as a pastor, is to, to, to be conscious that what we're building the church out of is, is much more made out of these gold and silver and jewels that Paul talks about, right? And these, things, these are things that are beautiful, okay? They are, they are pleasant on the eyes, but they're, more importantly for the analogy, they're inflammable. They can stand up to the fire of testing. Now for Paul, I think fundamentally this is the foundation that he talked about before, Christ crucified. And we talked last week about the pattern of, of God's wisdom in the cross itself, this idea of cruciformity, uh, of centering everything on, on the, the Jesus who's died for us, to, to take our sin and our grief upon himself and has called us to walk in a similar pattern of, of living ourselves. I think when we really kind of expand out on that, that this foundation uh, of, of Jesus and him crucified, we, there's so much more that we can take and build our, our ch- the, the church, the, the, the building, the temple here of Res City out of, right? It could be faith, hope, and love, um, these, these, these things that are embodied by Jesus. It could be the fruit of the Spirit, right? This is fruit that comes from the Spirit of Jesus. Uh, Paul talks about them in Galatians 5. We talk about them all the time. Here at Res City, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, uh, faithfulness, self-control. Um, it's a denial of self, a, a radical love for others. Um, it's a deep hope in and love of God. And I think it's a, a real covenantal love toward each other, right? Which is defined by commitment, not consumerism, right? Consumerism is so opposite of Christ-likeness. Now, in a sense, we're always looking to build our church out of these materials more and more. This is a never-ending building project, one that we will never arrive at on this side of heaven. And so I think the goal of ministry, the goal that Paul is calling us towards here, is to humbly serve day by day, trying to build it more and more. We're working on uh, the Sagrada Familia, knowing that we're contributing to something meaningful and brilliant. And for pastors, I think this is really a warning and an encouragement. Any pastor who takes it lightly, either knowingly or unknowingly, building their church out of wood uh, or hay or straw, what they're likely going to find at some point is that they have chosen to use the wrong materials. I think they're going to be confronted with that, I think, at some point in their lifetime and learn, man, I built something merely human. Okay? And the the idea that we could come to realize that, I think, should scare pastors. Now, I think if you're not a pastor, right, if you don't have any major control over what's happening at your church, right, first of all, I would actually just encourage you that you actually have a lot more control. You contribute more than you probably think you do. Um, and you can contribute more than you think you can just by being part of, of the culture uh, uh, that is built out of these things. Um, or maybe stepping into some sort of, you know, specific leadership or ministry role yourself, okay? But, but let's, let's go further. You can ask yourself a similar question about your own life, okay? Uh, what are you building your life out of, right? What we're doing in our life, what we choose to set our time towards, what we, uh, the vision that we set forward for our life, for who we want to be, for what we, how we want to interact with other people, for what we want to do with our time, for all sorts of stuff, how we want to manage the things that we have control over. Okay, what we're doing is we're building something there. If you made your life a microcosm of the church, 
would it be built more from Christ-like stuff, from this inflammable stuff that we're talking about, or do you think that it would be made up more out of these inf or flammable things, these things that aren't going to stand up to testing, to stress tests? It's a good question. I think it's one we, we have to ask ourselves on a regular basis. Now, everything Paul has set up to this point, it can be summed up in, I think, one word. And he uses this at the start of chapter 4. And that word is servanthood. He says, 1 Corinthians 4.1, So look at Apollos and me as mere servants of Christ who have been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. In the field and the building, this is what Paul's saying, the role of a leader is simply to know their role and to serve humbly. Okay, to discern their calling, their task, their ministry. Okay, that's a word Paul uses often. Find that out and be set free to go serve humbly in that role. Okay, when I speak for myself, I believe, I, I strongly believe I'm called to be a pastor here at Res City in this place here, St. Paul, right? And I have skills and gifts and interests and experiences that I think help contribute to that. I also know I have things I'm really not good at. I have things that I, 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 I'm going to struggle to contribute uh, in. And, and I know that God is going to use the things I'm good at. And, and hopefully he's going to, uh, me and my collaboration with others uh, who have different skills and gifts, we're going to work together to kind of build what is going on here. And so I truly believe my job is to internalize my, uh, my ministry Okay, my, my calling, my task, and to let that be burrowed deep into my heart. And then just to get to work serving, to discharge that to the full, and to strive to, to, to know how I can grow in that, be bet, a better servant all the time. And, and what that does is it allows me to not be worried about my accolades or how popular or not I might be. Right? It makes it so I don't have to feel like I have to constantly start and stop things and add anxiety to the world. Because I'm, I'm always trying to find something that works. Uh, instead, I actually can be, a, be what some pastors call a non-anxious presence in the world. Okay? We live in a world that is full of calm and chaos. Sorry, full of chaos. It's, it's not calm. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a flurry of activity constantly going on around us. I actually think there's something powerful about someone who humbly can just serve in the role that God has put them in, right? That is not frenetic, but is actually has a long view of things, is moving at a, at a calm pace, just waiting for God to guide them on where to go next and really try to hold that course until they get a fresh breath from the Spirit, right? As I read this and I study this and I meditate on this, and I pray about this, and I try to walk in the Spirit on this, I'm convinced more and more that this is really my main job at the end of the day, uh, is to humbly serve in this way. Now, I don't think Paul expects any of this to be a walk in the park and to be triumphalistic, okay? which the Corinthians seem to expect, right? They have this sense of their spirituality, of their wisdom, their power, their eloquence, as meaning that they've already, they're basically already living in heaven, and that triumphalism, that kind of triumphalism, is what ministry is all about, of experiencing, of leading people to some kind of triumph, to 
be extraordinary in some way. As if the Christian life is simply about escaping your problems as a way to transcend them in some way, right? It seems to be that that's, that's what they think God wants for them, right? So Paul speaks to this directly, kind of is a little sarcastic with them actually in, in 1 Corinthians 4, 8 to 9. He says, you think you already have everything you need. You think you are already rich. You have begun to reign in God's kingdom without us. Oh, I wish you were really already reigning for then we would be reigning with you. Instead, I sometimes think God has put us apostles on display, like prisoners of war at the end of a victor's parade, condemned to die. We become a spectacle to the entire world, to people and angels alike. What he's saying is, in contrast, true maturity and spirituality doesn't look like this. Okay? It actually looks like what we've talked about the last few weeks, this kind of point that Paul keeps coming back to uh, throughout um, the, the, the book of 1 Corinthians, Christ crucified. And what Paul does here is he uses a particularly grueling image to describe himself and other apostles in this pattern. Okay, and that's the image of something called a Roman triumph. Now in ancient Rome, whenever the Romans would win a military victory, which happened a lot, they were very good at winning military victories, they would hold a massive parade. Okay, just a parade down Main Street in Rome. And you'd have the conquering general, and he'd have his soldiers, and they would come in on chariots and horses, and they would just be cheered by the crowd. It's like a Super Bowl parade. We would, don't know what that is like here in Minnesota because we don't win anything ever, but imagine we did someday. There's a big parade with the victors coming down uh, Main Street. Now behind them would be some of the soldiers from the army that they had defeated. And they would be pulled along by chains behind the procession being probably stripped naked. There's, the goal is to humiliate them in front of the crowds. They're likely going to be led off to the gladiator pits. Here's what Paul's saying. Jesus has won a great victory. Um, but for those of us who do his work in the world, who do his ministry, when we're part of that victory parade, it actually feels sometimes more like we're being led behind it, like the people that have been defeated. Okay? At its worst, ministry can feel like this. Right? And even at its best, it's going to feel really ordinary sometimes. It's not going to feel all that triumphant in a lot of different ways. And so at the end of the day, okay, what I want you to take away from this, when you think about what ministry looks like, okay, whether big or small, whether it's, it's something you're doing as a vocation or something you're doing with a small chunk of your time, but it's you know, important to the church that you're, you're, you're serving in, Christian service looks Christ-like. Christian service looks Christ-like. Now, this seems very basic. It seems so basic as to be irrelevant. Like you would think, wow, thanks a lot, Joel. Is this really the best you have to offer me? Uh, is this fundamental um, idea? Okay, but the reason I bring it up is that it's become so basic that we forget it. It becomes so a part of the furniture of the, the rooms that we occupy on a regular basis that we kind of forget it's even there a lot of times. And when we do forget that it's there, things can go sideways really quickly. Now, we have a lot of people here at Red City who are in ministry of some sort. Okay, You might be 
a leader of some kind. Maybe you serve on some leadership team. Maybe you're a community group leader. Uh, you might be a volunteer. You volunteer in some way. I mean, pretty much most people are a city volunteer in some way. You're doing ministry, all of you. And even if you're not doing it specifically as part of the church, I think ministry really is doing work for God, right? You can do ministry in your neighborhood. You can minister to people that are your neighbors. You can minister to people that you work with. We're all doing ministry. We're all called to ministry. Scripture makes it clear. This is true for all of us. So to all of us, Ellen Davis, which I think I think she said this at like an ordination service for some, for some, some students graduating seminary. She says this, okay? I want you to hear this. Being a minister is not a matter of winning victories for God. Countless stories, movies, television, and now video games have burned into our imagination a certain heroic plot. The brave adventurer sent forth on a mission impossible and eventually winning against all odds. Yet this is not, and never can be, the pattern of Christian ministry, for the simple reason that it is not the pattern of the gospel, which, as you know, is all about human defeat, the shattering of human hope, the excruciatingly painful disappointment, of human desires. And after all that, in spite of all that, even through all that, God's victory becomes perceptible. That is why being an, a minister is such a lousy job for an incurable optimist, because disappointment is so fundamentally built into the job. Listen, I don't want to sugarcoat this. If you serve in some way, if you do ministry in some way, you're going to find this to be true in all kinds of ways. Right? Whether big or, big or small, right? In small ways, you'll feel this. Okay? People will irk you. Newsflash. People can be hard to work with sometimes. You might feel like you, you, know, you sometimes don't get the credit you deserve. Right? People, people might not thank you for what you do. They might not make you feel appreciated. Okay? You know, maybe it might be a little bit more than that. Right? Maybe you might feel like the hard work for a good purpose just kind of takes a toll on you. Like it's a challenge. You feel it after you're done with it. Um, and you might feel like, next time, you know, my flesh would rather call in sick than do this. Some days you might be looked down on for trying to serve Jesus. Sometimes people might hint to you or let you know flat out they think that they can do it better than you. They think they know more than you do. Okay? It can be sometimes really big that you feel this. Right? You, you're going to come into contact if you do ministry with people. And you're, sometimes you're even going to bear their deep deep pain, their sin, their hurt, their brokenness. You're signing up to take some of that on yourself when you do ministry. You might feel used. You might feel ghosted by people that you put a lot of time into, a lot of care into, people you feel deeply, you strongly care about them with no warning or explanation. And sometimes things might just not feel very fruitful, at least not as fruitful as you might hope, right? And maybe that's not totally true. Maybe it just seems like it's less fruitful than you think it is, but that's how you're going to feel. I've experienced all these things to different degrees, and I can tell you they never really get easier. Um, I'm not saying, okay, I don't want you to hear me wrong here. I'm not saying ministry is supposed to be a slog and you're supposed to hate every minute of it. It's not my point at all. Okay, there's deep joy to be found in ministry. I'm going to talk about that here in just a second as I close the sermon out. 
Okay, but I do want you to understand that ministry is Christ-like and that it includes aspects of the cross. Okay, that's what it means that it's Christ-like. I know that doesn't sound super exciting. I know it's not the best pitch in the world to do Christian ministry. Right, so you might be asking, why do I do ministry at all? And I, I do want to speak to you. Maybe someone listening to this, uh, maybe you are feeling nudged towards some 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 form of vocational ministry. Uh, maybe you're feeling nudged to some form of smaller ministry in the church, right? If that's you, yeah, I want you to have eyes wide open about this. Ministry is not a glamorous job, but you will find, I think, that God has a way of capturing your heart towards it if you let him. If you had told me in high school that I'd be a pastor, I'd have told you something must have gone wrong with my life before that, okay? I, I legit thought pastors were people who just couldn't do anything else of substance. So, you know, I was, and I mean, I was a dumb teenager. So, yeah, who cares what I thought at that point? But that's what I thought. I didn't think I'd be in, up in, be in ministry, right? I didn't grow up with a dream of being in pastoral ministry. But, but what I found is that God has a way of drawing you into it, surprisingly sometimes, of fortifying you for the hard work of following Jesus and serving in his field, serving in his building, of knowing it's worth it, that it matters, to give you strength to serve and endure. And honestly, it's kind of hard to explain that. But I can tell you now, there's nothing else I'd rather do. Even, oh yeah, I acknowledge it's not always easy. And I think there's something else too. And this is where we'll end today. Serving like Jesus, even in the hard, cross-like portions of it, brings us into a kind of encounter with Jesus that I think is truly special. And you can't just have that in, in reading your Bible or listening to worship or, or, or praying or in having silence and solitude. Some of these other ways that we experience God's presence, we meet, meet God directly. There's something about doing it, doing ministry, like Jesus did it that I think brings us amazingly close to Jesus. It brings us into a special kind of encounter with him. When we enter into ministry, okay, we are entering into these moments that Jesus himself experienced as he did his own ministry. Uh, the feelings of, of sadness and grief that he experienced when he cared for people, right? But he uh, saw them still deeply rejecting God and what God was up to in the world. Okay, we'll feel that too, a groaning deep within us sometimes. Um, we, the feeling of betrayal that Jesus felt as those closest to him abandoned him. Right, this moment right next to, right, right, right when he's about to die on the cross, he's abandoned by so, so many of these people who had been close to him. Okay, you might feel like that sometimes too. Uh, the feeling of, of righteous anger when Jesus upends the tables in the temple, like we're going to feel that too when we look around and we see things like sin and death and evil and the effects that they have on the cities and the societies and the people that we love. We're going to feel that sense of righteous anger. Uh, we're going to feel the deep pain of the world, even to the point of bearing the shame and the guilt and the pain of others like Jesus does on the cross. Okay, We're going to feel that like Jesus did. When we feel these things, I really think these are sacred and holy moments because when we feel them, I think Jesus comes alongside us. And that's a real privilege, I think. And it makes ministry worth it. 
I think it allows us to see God do the amazing work that he does out of death and in resurrection. Okay, because we're following Jesus to the cross, we're also following him to the resurrection. We're going to see the work of resurrection in our lives as well if we follow Jesus in ministry. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you don't ask us to do anything in ministry that you yourself have not done before us. In fact, um, Lord, you have set the pattern for us in this. And Lord, the pattern is tough. It looks like uh, the cross, but it also means resurrection. And we don't have to do it alone. God, you work with us. Your help is available for us as we do this because it's your field. It's your building that's being built, God, and you care about it far more than we ever could. So I pray for those of us who are doing ministry right now, Lord, that you would be with us and help us to uh, follow you well in it, God, so that we may be people who are like your son Jesus more and more every day through the work of doing ministry. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.